0: You guys ready to go vote at the bar? Stay tuned to find out more about this interesting concept, and many more, in just a moment. Welcome to the Varieties of History, where each week we will delve into some interesting U.S. history presented by me, Sarah. So stay tuned for some knowledge here on the Varieties of History. victualling house, cellar, eating house, all which later became known as saloons and what we commonly know as the bar, restaurant, and a hotel or a motel, and many others. A restaurant typically was not a place where people frequented, rather the tavern was the place that was almost a combination of a hotel, motel, restaurant, bar. Think about your local holiday inn. See the name Inn? In Holiday Inn? (laughs) You get it. These taverns, which is the word I will use for pretty much the entire episode for the sake of not becoming overly confusing, uh, would eventually evolve over time, but they hold a very interesting history, which I can't wait to talk to you about today. And I think they are one of my favorite historical things to study. Maybe it's because I used to do living history in a historic tavern, but who knows? But what makes these places special in early American colonial life? So I thank you for joining me today on the Varieties of History. And this is one thing we're going to be talking about is the idea of taverns on the colonial landscape and alcohol and the importance or the role it played within colonial American society in the 1700s. Now, I may bring up a snippet here of like some 1600s or some early 1800s, but for the most part, we're talking about the 1700s period here. So what made these places special? For one, they offered a a variety of services that today would seem a little odd, but yet made sense in the community in the 1700s period, which I'm mainly focusing on here. Remember, I opened the show with a question about voting at the bar. Yes, they did that. The Colonials. I don't think that would go too well today, voting in a bar. But, uh, but just, no, it wouldn't. (laughs) But what are some other things that made taverns important in the colonial period? And to go along with the podcast theme for the season, the drinking aspect, how did alcohol have an influence in the lives of colonial people. Now, if you hear a lot of yelling and screaming in the background, which I'm hoping is muffled, pretty much on every episode I say this, and it's probably not a surprise to you if you've listened to this before, but my children are running up and downstairs. They're running, I don't even know what the heck they're doing downstairs. They were like destroying a Doc McStuffins hospital kit thing. I don't even know. So that's what they're doing downstairs. I'm trying to focus on what I wrote in my nose here. (laughs) And I'm drinking a delicious stout while doing it. Because this episode is about drinking in taverns. And I wouldn't feel like I'd be doing a service to this episode if I were not drinking a really good stout. And if you want to know what it is, it's Flying Fish Brewing Company Fried Ice Cream Stout. Which is my favorite one ever. My husband bought it for me. And... He's the best because I asked him, I was like, I need a stout or just a beer specifically for this episode because that is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about drinking in the colonial era. How could I like not doing, how could I not drink if I'm doing an episode on, no, drinking? It'd be weird. So, um, and I'm not a big drinker. I'll have a beer every once in a while or some wine every once in a while, but it's not something we normally keep in the house. So I was like, this is a special occasion. I need it. Now that I'm hearing my kids yelling in the background and jumping around and acting crazy, I think I needed a little bit more, so let's go back to talking about the topic at hand. So, how did alcohol then influence in the lives of the colonial people that lived in this area, in this nation, in this country, in this on this continent during during the 1700s? First, let's talk about the names and how each type of building was actually used. Because those are something that didn't always have the same exact definition or purpose or function. For the most part they did, but in some ways they didn't always. It just depended on the actual establishment itself and maybe the um, locality based on the laws in the particular place that they were living in at that time. So an inn and tavern were sometimes interchangeable. Uh, known as ordinaries, which the term ordinary is more of an English name for these places. So it was like the old world meaning, you know, the homeland meaning of of, uh, of what a tavern or an inn was to the to the um, American landscape. The English would have known as an ordinary. A victualling house, which was also like a restaurant and in some circumstances. Um, one being the golden ton in New York City was used for takeout purposes too. So you can you can dine in at the establishment um, and eat actual, like, a really nice meal. So this was more for people who really had the means to go out to spend their money at a restaurant, which was not something that was commonly done because restaurants were not a thing. It was a tavern. Um, so this was kind of like an oddball, I guess, out of, like, out of, like, the... The scene of colonial you know, dining out and drinking and and all of that. So a victualling house was more for like a restaurant type way of patronage rather than going to a tavern where you might stay overnight. Victualling house, you didn't normally do that, um, and it was also used for takeout. In this particular instance, so you can actually go in, order your food, and then take it home, which was like amazing. <laughs> so, but this was not, like I said, it was not a typical thing that people, I mean, you could carry away food with you if you were on a journey or something, but this was specifically for going to a restaurant, eating, or you can go and pay your, 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 whatever it was that you were paying for your meal, and then you would take it out with you. But it wasn't always a place where people would sleep. At an inn or a tavern, you would typically stay at, those places overnight um but it just depended it depended on what the place was calling itself the area that they were located in and all that now i'm going to take a quick break and when i come back we'll delve into more about why these places were important so stay tuned might you ask were these places even important like why do I need to know this stuff (laughs) I mean if you're interested in history I mean it's important because if you think about today think about bars restaurants hotels motels all these places that we just take for granted today they all had a beginning somewhere and the inns and the taverns are where they pretty much started um, in this country anyway so, think about how we have community spaces today, also, where we can get together um like a church or a cultural center where events might be held, but without sleeping amenities and food and drink, unless it's served for a special occasion, like if you know you're celebrating that the town is having like a special pancake breakfast, i don't know for Christmas or whatever um Then, you know, maybe a cultural center or firehouse or somewhere might have something like that um, where you can gather together in that space and have maybe food and drink for one day, but not like alcohol, but just like, you know, a meal. And then any other time they might have other events. So oftentimes the tavern was one of the first places in the community to actually be built, even before a church. And you know them folks like their church. So they would gather together for church in these spaces before the church was actually built. How some, how about some, uh, you know, some small beer with your John three 16. <laughs> Like You're just like reading the Bible, going through the Bible. I mean, I, I'm a church goer. I go to church on Sunday. I'm over here drinking my flying fish stout, <laughs> right? Like I couldn't imagine like going into the sanctuary and opening up my Bible and just reading and then like having, although there are, th- there are, there are, there are, some some places that actually do meet in taverns. I know somebody who did that. <laughs> um, where they had like church in a tavern. It is actually a thing. You could still do that. It's not very common. And some Baptists might frown upon it. But you know, um, it is something that, that still occurs. But I personally couldn't imagine going into church and having instead of my morning coffee, having a beer <laughs> with people all, like flipping through the Bible. Yeah, you know, reading Ephesians or something. That would be a little, just be a little weird, you know? So, but they were also essential in finding out, um, the taverns were also essential in finding out uh, any local or any kind of like world news. Sometimes information would be posted, anything of importance to the community where others can read about happenings that were going on. So that that was also another, important part of a tavern or an inn so think about for example a community board at your local grocery store that has business cards and pictures and advertisements of all different kinds this served almost the same purpose so but they didn't have grocery stores they had the tavern like the tavern was everything the inn was everything it was like all things and comes in one place because you could even you could even buy things there you know like if you need some candles, buy some candles. If you need to buy like, I don't know, a new shoes for your horse, there's a uh, blacksmith shop out back. So we're going to just sell, you know, you need some. The one place that I actually, I did do historical um, living history, let's say historical reenactment. If I did like living history and this one particular um, home that was also a tavern, the man was a blacksmith who also made his own door hinges and um like not door knobs but latches and locks and all sorts of things and there were different ones all throughout the house. And so that would have been a very good selling point for um and a place to sell to people who might be drinking a little too much. Hey, you know, I you know, I got top of the line I got top of the line locks here that nobody's ever going to break into your house or like mine is the most modern type of lock and key you can find. No one else has this or I'll make it to whatever way you want it. You know, so that's a really good way of being able to sell your product as well, because oftentimes the tavern was also somebody's home. But let's go back for a minute. So I said that you can find out news. Sometimes um, newspapers or some other kind of newsprint were um, delivered to the taverns for people to be able to read any kind of if you were able to read, um, if you had men often more so than that, because women were not really able to go into taverns that often. But um they were able to be able to read about any kind of news that was going on either locally or around the world, which I say around the world, but like maybe in the over like in England things that were happening in England at the time, right? There were also places to do trade. They uh, functioned as a um, post office. They were places to purchase goods. They functioned also as courtrooms. They were used for political meetings, gathering together and playing games, listening to music, for traveling shows, which I think came a little bit later. Traveling shows were more of like the... Um, 1800 style saloon type but sometimes you would have some music just playing in a tavern or an inn for the enjoyment of the the patrons there but like i said earlier voting was common <laughs> in a tavern which is uh, I think it's probably always since I learned about it has been my all-time favorite thing to learn about because it just seems so funny. Like I honestly couldn't imagine voting at a bar today. Like, it just doesn't seem like it would make sense. But hey, I mean, I don't know, maybe some people make better voting choices if we still went this direction. I don't know, I'm just kidding. But now I think the bar is closed. And this is in quotation mark, the bar is closed. So did you know that this term came from the cage bars that housed the alcohol and dishware or any kind of goods behind it? And it was locked. The cage bar was pulled down. And I will try to find something like a diagram or something that I can post on Instagram because I do have an Instagram and I'm going to tell you about it in a little while. Uh, But that was pulled down and you can lock... So that nobody was able to steal anything at night. So the bar is closed came from this idea of actually taking the bar, the bars that would actually be hoisted up and held in place and then pulled back down and locked into place when the bar was closed. If you say the bar is open, that's when the bars go up. It's hard to explain unless I have a diagram. So I'll have to show you, but this um, prevented thieves from taking things that they shouldn't. And, since taverns had a lot of different people traveling and staying for a night or two, it was probably the safer option of things to do so, you know, some guy who was drinking a little too much wouldn't want more punch, you know, or more ale or whatever is sitting behind the bar in a in a corked bottle. But also, depending on the tavern and the time, there might have been separate space for women and men to enter as well. Women weren't often traveling um, and staying in taverns because they would be home tending to their own household and family, unless they were accompanied by their husband or their father. Um, so we think about that today as very strange, right? Like we see this in some countries where women really don't have the same amount of um, privilege that we do here in the United States or in in the West. There are other countries in the world where women are still often accompanied by a male family member, brother, uncle, father, cousin, whoever's closest to them, a male, in order to be able to do whatever, to even just step out of the house or sit in a car. And in colonial times, it wasn't that much different. Um, women were not often seen traveling alone. And if they were, it was very rare. Um, and women were also not, um, typically unaccompanied when it went, when it came to them being in a tavern or an inn, they would often be traveling with a male family member. If they weren't, it was very rare or they might have had some other privileges or they were considered prostitutes. So women were typically, you know, homebodies because they had to be. They had their own households they had to tend to. They had their own family, their children, extended family members living with them. If they did though, there would be a separate entrance for them to enter, so as not to get mixed with the men and their business. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, taverns would run out were run out of family homes. Therefore, the patron would spend the night on a cot. With an absolute stranger in a separate part of the house, which seems very strange. It's like going to like the, mo- you know, your like local motel or hotel paying, you know, a couple of bucks to sleep in the same bed as some stranger who you never met. We're like, okay, I pay for this spot in this bed at the Holiday Inn. I just keep using Holiday Inn because it's like, what well, it comes to mind, but seems very strange. But this isn't always the case. You may pay for a meal and lodging, or you may just pay one fee um, for everything. You may pay for just the space in the bed. You may pay for an entire weekend. It just depended on the person running the business. This was also one of the very few careers. As I said earlier, women were not often seen going into a tavern, but... This is one of the very few careers that a woman could actually have during this time. Running a tavern was seen as a partially domestic um, career in nature. So she could run, she could co-run the business with her husband or other male family member who owns the business. Or if her husband or other male family member that was closest to her and she ended up inheriting this property because he was away um, and not returning, or she was widowed, or they just passed away, Um, it allowed for her to keep her home while making money by doing tasks that she was already trained in doing, which was domestic work. So now when we come back, I will discuss how important it was to the colonial people, colonial folk, that drinking be done pretty much daily Not always in taverns, but just in general. Stay tuned. Thank you for coming back, my friends. So... Now that we have established that taverns were important, not just for their use in the community, but also for their ability to allow people to vote better after drinking some hot toddies. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to stop making these jokes about voting because it seriously is like the weirdest thing and like the most funny thing to me. Um, but I will tell you about why drinking was so important to the colonials. So, um, you know, those Puritans, let me, let me tell you about them. Before the 1700s. Oh, they loaded more alcohol, mainly beer, than water on the Mayflower. I mean, it was regularly a daily drink like for them. They just, you know, they just drank a lot of beer. But there's a little catch to that, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. And what about those children? Yes, even the children drank. But it wasn't exactly like them swigging down some whiskey, you know? So which was like, you know, 60, 70 percent small beer, which is what the average family drank every single day. Like everybody was drinking small beer. It was like drinking a soda. You know, if you drink a Coke or you have juice or you have water, or you have orange juice or whatever your family drinks. That is what small beer was to the colonials. It was about four percent or less of alcohol. Um, and it was often safer to drink than water at the time, provided It also provided nutrition to the diet um, and therefore was not frowned upon until later when stronger distilled alcohol became a problem and early temperance came on the scene. Which is going to be an exciting uh, episode for me to talk about because the temperance movement is just such a fascinating topic in itself. Like there's just so much behind it, which I cannot wait to talk to you guys about. And hopefully you'll enjoy those episodes as well in the future. But early wild yeast fermentation made beer making a bit more finicky and it wasn't always a pleasing thing to drink. In New England, the colonists went through the trouble of actually shipping hop grains from England so that they can continue to make the beer that they were more familiar with rather than the crap that they were drinking here in the very beginning. And when I say crap, I mean... They thought it was crap. It was like sour or bitter or just tasted funky. It had no similarity in flavor to what they would have gotten in the old, old world, you know? So sometimes they would opt for red or black spruce twigs boiled in water or ginger. But here's an interesting little ditty that I found whilst researching. And it goes, If barley be wanting to make into malt... We must be content and think it's no fault, for we can make liquor to sweeten our lips of pumpkins and parsnips and walnut tree chips. This came from J. Martin and M. Lender's Drinking in America, and I think it was written in 1982. I didn't write down the date, but I'm trying to remember it by heart. Very interesting book. You definitely need to take a read from that because um, there's just so much more information than I'm gonna give you here. But anyway. Do you guys remember back in the day when cartoons, not just dating, you know, dating yourself, back in the day when cartoons had, like, drunk birds? I just remember birds. I don't know why. Like, you know, like the Looney Tunes cartoons or what were the elder ones? There were some other ones. But anyway, there were drunk birds holding a bottle that had XXX on it. Like, where did that come from? Well, we can thank beer labeling. And the labeling for the alcohol content um, from the colonial period. I mean, it might have gone back even further, but from what I I was reading and that I found so far was just from colonial, colonial period. Uh, The content was X, XX, and XXX. (laughs) So funny how later in the season I will talk about straight edge, which is against alcohol, And we, I say we because I used to be straight edge. We would draw large black X's on our hands. But, you know, back in the colonial period, the X's actually stood for the amount of alcohol within each bottle of alcohol they were drinking. So you might have some whiskey, right, or rum. And that might have had an XXX on the bottle or some moonshine if it was very, you know. Very backwoods, and no, nobody was getting it. That was just drunk. Like, nobody even got a bottle from that. Um, But I joke. But a small beer would be an X, right? Oh, an XX might be a cider, and maybe an XXX might be rum because of uh, just the distillation process, the amount of fermentation, and the high alcohol content. So small beer, wine, cider, which was hard cider, spirits. There are others, but I'm not going to go through the process of, you know, like, um, what they had to go through with, with everything, like how to make it and all that stuff. Like I did with the first episode of this series and in this season and with the indigenous groups and, and the variety of methods for making the fermented beverages. But I do think it's important to briefly discuss some information So I'm going to take a quick break and then I will be back with all of what you probably have finally wanted to hear, which is about the types of alcohol that they drank and was it very important to them. (laughs) You know, it finally took me like, I don't know, 20 minutes to get there, but I will talk to you in a minute. Wine was not always a typical drink because you needed to have the right temperature and soil for growing grapes, but wine was one of the things on the list that I um, have here that would have been drunk by certain people. So let's say Washington, right? George Washington was a very wealthy man. And we think about the founding fathers and the amount of wealth that they had and the part of society that they were in. They were in the upper class, so they would have had the money and the means to get wine. But it wasn't something that a typical home brewer or your, you know, regular old colonist would have had um, money to, to buy anywhere, or that a home brewer would even have been able to consistently make. Mead was another one made from honey, which May have been a little more convenient if you had a scup or hives, ways to collect the honey, or maybe just purchase at a market. But it was one of those things that you really, you really didn't. I mean, it had its own process, right? So, wine mead. These were typically made from a variety of of berries, such as elderberries, blackberries, cranberries, strawberries. But this was like kind of interesting to me because I. I know I've read a lot about taverns, but this was something and then drinking and all that. This was something I never actually knew was that they were made from other things. Like I've heard of dandelion wine and maybe some flowers and leaves and stuff added to it, but I never heard of vegetables and herbs being turned into wine before. And that's something that was not super common, but it was done. (laughs) I don't know the process of it, but it's, it was done, um, but oftentimes those who could afford wine were purchasing it to be transported from overseas, such as Italy or France, so or Spain or wherever. So that's Washington. Just think of Washington because he's the most um, well-known example that we can just throw the name out here that everybody knows Washington. So, But uh, small beer was also very popular, but it had a very short shelf life and therefore was consumed daily with meals, or sometimes even just as a meal itself. And ship's beer was stronger when transported from a distance, and it was made with extra sugar and malt. It was often very pricey and not consumed daily by the typical colonists, and would have been more for those um, who could afford it, like, let's say Washington, I just, I'm gonna just keep throwing Washington out here, sorry, Washington, you know, (laughs) I'm gonna say sorry, George, but, um, it was more of like, you know, depending on the, the, the level of establishment, you know, that you could afford, so if you were Washington, and you can go out for a meal somewhere, and they had some fancy ship's beer, you know, you can, or if you just were, um, a person who had some extra money, and you were traveling, and you wanted to have something special, and the tavern was offering it. Maybe if you were in Boston, or Philadelphia, or in a bigger a bigger port city, then you might be able to get some ship's beer. Next was cider, and cider was made from apples. Now, apples were not indigenous to New England when the settlers arrived, so... They, um, eventually had seeds sent over from England and they grew apple trees and years and years and years later, oh, apples were made into cider and cider's amazing. And I love cider and I haven't had it in a while, but, um, I really just, and I, I just did that very big gasp because I I kind of want some cider now after like thinking about it. Cider is so good. But there's, you know, there are lots of orchards by where I live and I couldn't imagine a landscape without apple trees. I think they're just they're just so beautiful to look at when they're flowering and then in the fall when you go apple picking. But these um these fermented drinks were made from apples and sometimes honey or cane sugar or beet sugar depending on what kind of sugar you had or molasses, whatever was available to you which allowed the alcohol content to increase and it produced carbonation, which eventually turned into something like an apple champagne because it was so bubbly. And it was had at breakfast, lunch, dinner, and supper. And yes, dinner and supper are two separate things. Because I remember back when I was a kid, my grandmother would say, time for supper. But we didn't have a dinner. It was just supper. Supper was just supper. (laughs) It was lunch and then supper, but there was breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then supper, which might be another topic to cover another time, but it was drunk at different times of the day and for all ages, and it was was enjoyable and available to almost everyone, and the alcohol content was not super high, so if kids drank it, it would probably just make them a little bit more sleepy, maybe, in the afternoon, I don't know. I'd never given my kids cider, so I have no idea. I mean, they've had regular apple cider, but not like alcoholic cider. But rum was the next one on the list, and rum was imported from the Caribbean, and eventually molasses and cane sugar were imported into the colonies, which allowed the colonists to make their own. Now, rum was one of New England's. Let's think of Boston, for example. It was one of its most successful industries. Washington had his hands in the rum business, and by the end of the revolution, his rum would later be called Kentucky bourbon in the 19th century. Now we move on to whiskey. What's more American than whiskey? I don't know, but nothing ain't more. Nothing ain't more. Except maybe moonshine, moonshine is. But moonshine comes from whiskey, don't you know? So whiskey was unfortunately, and I keep doing this <laughs> this like little, I don't know, sigh or whatever. It was because it makes me sad. Whiskey was considered a drink of the poor and was still traded by Washington. And whiskey had an alcohol content of about 60 to 70% ABV. He drank mostly Madeira or brandy or port. And it's sometime, maybe the next episode, I'm going to talk about the Whiskey Rebellion, which was one of my many and you'll you'll learn like I have a lot of many favorite topics in history because I just love history but the whiskey rebellion was when I first learned about it I don't know if it's just the name whiskey rebellion and it just sounds cool but I just loved learning about the whiskey rebellion when I was in high school I just thought this was such an interesting topic and I would love to talk more about it which I think fits nicely in with this season in particular So stay tuned for that. I think I'm going to do that on the next episode before I get into the Quakers and Puritans and all this other stuff. But this is the most American of American alcohols that you can get. Unless you want to look at Moonshine. Okay, okay, Moonshine. I just had to add this in. It's known as Corn Squeezins, White Lightning, or Thump Whiskey. It was actually made in Appalachia west of PA, PA meaning Pennsylvania, by the Scots, who had still making knowledge and eventually turned into and turned it into a drink that I know for sure I can't partake, partake in. I can't even say it. I didn't even drink any moonshine. I can't even talk, but I can't partake in it because boy, that is strong. I mean, I've had some moonshine before and whew, it is it's pretty strong. But when you think about Americana, you think about whiskey And you think about moonshine, and this term is found to go back as far as 1785 in Gross's Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, which came from making the drink by the light of the moon when no one was looking. Those sneaky dudes were making some moonshine up in Appalachia. And most people, when they think of moonshine, they think of Appalachia. You think of Americana, you think of America, you think of Kentucky bourbon, you think of Whiskey, you think of Tennessee whiskey, you think of just that region. It's all in the mountains of West Virginia or Virginia, or it's just such an interesting history in and of itself that that would be a whole season to talk about, which I may do because I just think it's fascinating. But in any case, alcohol was not always welcomed by some, mainly the Quakers which will be featured in an upcoming episode, and I might even touch upon the Puritans as well. But that isn't to say that they all eschewed alcohol. Small beer was a staple drink. Like I said earlier, think of orange juice or soda or water or whatever, tea, coffee, you know, anything that's in everybody's household today. Um, I mean, we don't drink soda. We drink OJ from time to time. We drink water. I drink a lot of tea. We drink coffee in the morning. But that's how important small beer... So let's compare it to coffee. Because coffee or tea are, like, probably the one thing that's drunk the most in, like, every household. You know? And I'm going to do an episode on coffee. Coffee and chocolate. And I am from New Jersey. And so I say coffee and I say chocolate. And that's how I say it. But I am going to do an episode on both of those things because... They have a very interesting history in our country's, um, in our country's history as well. So, but think about how those drinks affect our every single day. That's what small beer, and that's how important small beer was to the colonists, or even ale, you know, in some instances. But it wasn't as crazy as drinking like a rattleskull And the water was often contaminated or unhealthy to drink depending on if you were close to farms and cows and if you were living in a city and people were throwing their chamber pots out the window and it's going into the waterways, whatever. It typically wasn't something that was drunk on a daily basis. Small beer was like our water for the colonists, you know? Some drinks known in the colonial period that would have been familiar to everyone were rum with it was called flip rum it was made with rum ale eggs nutmeg and sometimes sugar and or molasses and using a red hot poker and then stirring it in the serving mug to warm it it makes it like frothy there was another one called stone fences which was like a cider and rum mix rattleskull which i just um mentioned it was a dark beer, like a stout or porter, rum and lime. And a wassail, which was baked apples, sherry, cider and ale. And grog, which, I mean, everybody knows grog. It's just a mixture of any kind of spirits with water. So it was basically a very diluted, diluted drink of like whiskey or rum or something. But, or it could be a mixture of all different drinks watered down. So the importance of drinking in this time period were immense because small beer not only was it important to the lives of those people in the upper crust it was also important to people who were just living the regular old life and living on a farm and taking care of their families and you know going back to and from market to exchange goods and to make money and to survive pay their taxes home brewers the wife of the house or the man of the house would be making their own small beer to give to their families as a nutritious type of a drink but also in place of water and alcohol even though that had alcohol in it it wasn't enough to be like oh my gosh you know the kids are drinking i don't know like a shot of tequila right Your kids wouldn't be drinking, like, a shot of tequila. Like, I don't know if I would have a problem giving my kids small beer today. I probably wouldn't. You know, like, if my child asked me, like, like, Tristan, my son, Tristan, typically. I'm going to bring him in here for a second. He's not in here, but, like, I'm going to bring him into the story. Like, I'm drinking a beer right now. And one time he asked me if he could have a sip of this to try it out. And I said, you can have a sip and taste it. And he just, like, every time we have a beer, he's, like, intrigued. Like, he wants to have it. But this is, like... This is the one that I'm drinking is 10.3% alcohol. That is not what a home brewer would have been brewing, right? So a little tiny sip is just enough for him to be like, I don't know. This kind of is disgusting, you know, or cider was another alcoholic beverage that children could also drink. Everybody could drink it. And it was almost like drinking an orange juice today, except it just had some fermentation in the process and it had a little bit of alcohol in it, but you wouldn't as a, a family be drinking wine or be drinking rum or be drinking these mixed type drinks like rattleskull or, or wassail. These wouldn't be something that you would typically drink at home on a daily basis. They were important to the cultural landscape of the colonial people because it kept you warm. It gave you a good feeling inside. When you were at a tavern, just think about the bars of today, right? You go to a bar and you get a couple of drinks and you feel loosened up and you talk to people. Like, let's say you're kind of a shy person and you don't really talk to many people, you know? You go to a bar, you have two drinks, and you're like, everybody's friend. It's kind of similar. It makes you feel good for a temporary period There wasn't any kind of restriction against it in the sense that you couldn't go to a tavern and have a drink. But there was a limit, and if you drank too much, you would be escorted out. You would get in trouble by local authorities. And there were some places where you couldn't open a tavern. If you lived in a very Puritan town or a very Quaker town, but not all Quakers and Puritans were against alcohol either, like I had discussed earlier in the episode with Puritans bringing over beer on the Mayflower because it was a drink that was safe rather than the water that would have been tainted. So there were also occasions where if you were living in maybe a place like Maryland where you had a great number of Catholics who might have attended a service where wine was used during the ceremony for, um, you know, whatever mass that they were holding, then it would probably have been only set for that period of time to have that particular drink. But you might go home and have a small beer afterwards, just like a Quaker might be totally against having rum or any kind of strong spirits of any kind because they believed it was bad for the liver and bad for the heart and bad for the kidneys And bad for your mental attitude and not allowing you to be clearer headed when it came to the stronger spirits. But when it came to having small beer, it was a completely different story because like drinking orange juice, you know, drinking orange juice and drinking rum are completely different things. So I think for our discussion here today, you have learned a little bit about why taverns and alcohol were a very, very important part to the way that the colonial landscape came to be and formed and evolved into what we have today. So there you have it. I hope that this episode made you want to go out and drink a nice pint of something amazing. And I'm not going to lie. Like I said earlier, I'm sitting here drinking an amazing stout right now that my husband got for me. And it's making me feel so happy to have made this episode to share with you about colonial drinking habits and the importance of taverns. So on the next episode, I hope to introduce you to and give you a brief, just like a brief introduction into the Whiskey Rebellion before turning our ears towards the Puritans and the Quakers and then moving along to the Saloon era and the Temperance movement and so on. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Colonial History aspect of The Varieties of History, Episode 2, Season 3. And keep a lookout for next episode. And I am going to hold up my stout to you, and I'm going to say cheers. Bye. Today on this week's episode of the show. If you have done research and would like to be a featured guest or have any questions or comments, please email me at thevarietiesofhistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Talk to you soon. Cheers.